As we continue our studies in Exodus, turning to Exodus, we'll begin to read perhaps in chapter 10, just to give us the the flow of events, uh, and then continue into chapter 11. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 10, and we'll read from verse 21. Add the sequence of uh, the plagues, and now we come to uh, the ninth of the plagues here at the end of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky, so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. It will never happen. How often do we hear that response uh, to warnings of danger or disaster? It will never happen. Authorities can put up signs and fences and other means of forbidding access to dangerous places edges of cliffs, wherever it may be, 
danger ahead and so forth. And yet still there'll be those who'll insist on ignoring them, who'll see it as a, as a mark of their courage or whatever to ignore the warnings and put themselves in the place of danger. And they're sure disaster will never happen to them. And perhaps on a bigger scale, uh, the experts may predict the natural disasters, the, the earthquakes, the volcanic eruptions, whatever it may be. And there will always be those who refuse to take any action or to listen to the warnings. It'll never happen. Until, of course, sometimes it does. And Pharaoh's a case in point. Pharaoh was warned by the Lord before any of the plagues took place. Back in Exodus 4.23, the Lord said, I will kill your firstborn son. But no, Pharaoh would not listen. Sometimes he came very close to allowing Israel to go. Or he said they can go and then he changed his mind. But he never really took the warnings to heart. Nine warnings, nine plagues that the Lord sent each time. Ultimately, Pharaoh refused to listen. So we're moving now to Exodus 11 this evening. We're looking at the chapter as a whole and recalling our study this evening, the final confrontation. The final confrontation. And there are three final things that we can identify in this chapter. We have, first of all, the final send-off. The final send-off. Uh, events are moving rapidly towards a climax, towards the God-ordained climax, because there is no chance or randomness in what's taking place here uh, at this point uh, in the history of Israel down in Egypt. It's a God-ordained climax. Chapter 10 uh, and verse 29, we read at the beginning uh, of our service, after the plague of darkness, darkness that they could feel, Moses is standing before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh issues uh, his death threat uh, in verse 28, the day you see my face, you will die. Now, it turns out to be an empty threat, but that's another story. Moses responds, I will never appear before you again. But he doesn't leave at the end of chapter 10. You might think he walks out at that point, but he doesn't. He simply carries on into chapter 11. He's still standing there because he's a message to deliver from the Lord, and Moses is not going anywhere until he has delivered God's word. In the opening verses of chapter 11, the Lord said to Moses, it's not entirely clear, does the Lord say this to Moses as he's standing there before Pharaoh? Perhaps in a voice in his head or whatever it may be, uh, or is it something that the Lord had previously said to Moses before he went in for the, the interview with Pharaoh? We don't know. And in the end, it doesn't really matter. 
The Lord in verses 1 to 3 has a message for Moses before he then goes on to speak God's word to Pharaoh. And there are two things in particular that the Lord speaks to Moses about. First of all, in verse 1, there's the phrase, one more plague. God's purpose in these events is almost complete. Nine plagues already, one to come. God's goal is about to be reached because this, of course, is all going in the direction that God has planned. It is not as if God sends a plague, it doesn't work, and he casts about for something else to do. All of this is carefully planned and decreed by a sovereign God. And the plagues are God's work. These are not simply natural phenomena or natural disasters. Oh yes, certainly sometimes God used, for example, uh, the wind in chapter 10 to bring the locusts and to take them away. God could use means on some occasions to raise the plagues. But whatever he did and whatever means he used, if any, they're all God's work. And it's his hand that we need to see in these nine and then in the tenth event. These are God's judgments. Judgments on Egypt as a nation. Judgments on Egypt's ruler, on Pharaoh, because he's the He's the focus of Moses' dealings with the Egyptians. And as we've noticed several times, judgment also on the gods of Egypt. So many of the plagues were striking at particular points where the Egyptians venerated this god or that god. The Nile, for example, when the water was turned to blood. The Nile was sacred There were several gods uh, who watched over the Nile. And God simply demonstrates they have no power at all. They're useless. They could do nothing. It is God at work. It's interesting uh, that here alone, uh, at the beginning of chapter 11, uh, the word that's used for plague uh, is the word for a blow or, or a stroke As if God says there is one more blow I'm going to strike against Egypt and that's going to finish it. And that will be the end of the matter. It is a blow from the hand of Almighty God. And the result of that final blow, God says, with regard to Pharaoh, he will drive you out completely. See, the change is going to be... Pharaoh each time was clinging on to the Israelites, you're not going to go. I won't allow everybody to go. I won't allow everybody and their livestock to go. And yet when God strikes that final blow, Pharaoh can't get them out quick enough. And he will drive them out. And we need to see, and this is something that will crop up several times this evening, What we see is a God who keeps his word, who keeps his promises. 
you can turn back to chapter 6 and verse 1. And there God tells Moses, because of my mighty hand, he, Pharaoh, will drive them out. So there's no doubt about that. God says that's what will happen. He told Moses well in advance, and the sovereign God will fulfill his word. And at every point in the record we have in Exodus 11, we see a God who keeps his word. And we can trust God and his word because they will not fail. They cannot fail. If God's promise failed, God would be denying his very nature. So one more plague. One final blow from the hand of God. And one other thing that the Lord has to say to Moses regarding this final send-off of of Israel. And it's in that phrase in verse 3, favorably disposed. The Lord says he's going to work in such a way that the Egyptians will change their, their attitude to the Israelites. If the Israelites ask for articles of silver and gold and God says, go and do that, go to your neighbors, ask for silver and gold articles from them, they'll give them to you. In a sense, perhaps, they'll be so glad to see you go. They'll be so relieved and they'll be so fearful of Israel's God. They'll give you anything. Whatever you need, the Egyptians will give you. And again, it's the hand of God. There's the reason, verse 3, the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed. It's the mighty working of God. God graciously is at work. And again, he's keeping his promise. He's honoring his word. Way back, again, before the plagues, chapter 3, verse 21, you will not go empty-handed. And they won't. It's God's promise. Indeed, it's not just his promise in Exodus 3. You can go right back to Abraham, centuries before. And when in Genesis 15, God made his covenant with Abraham. And Abraham was in that deep sleep and had those strange visionary experiences. God told him, what would happen to the Israelites, his descendants. And God told Abraham centuries before, they'll be in Egypt for 400 years. And then he says, they will come out with great possessions. So Israel had this promise for many centuries, for generations. And now God's going to keep it. And it cannot fail. Here's a God who honors his word. He changes the hearts of the Egyptians to be generous to the Israelites. Interesting, too, the respect, we are told, in which Moses was held. He was highly regarded among the Egyptians. Now, it is not saying that the Egyptians loved the Israelites and loved Moses or Moses' God. There's no indication of that. But God works in such a way that there's an awe that descends on the Egyptians with regard to Moses and to Israel. 
that they will give them whatever they can as they are leaving bondage in Egypt. The Lord is acting in grace to deliver his people, to set them free, and to provide for them. And isn't that how God always works? He delivers his people and he provides everything they need. And when we turn to 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, what are we told? That God has provided everything we need for life and godliness. And it's in Christ. He hasn't changed. The God who provided for Israel as they left bondage, as they were delivered from Egypt, is the God who constantly provides for his people when we are delivered from the bondage of sin and brought out into the freedom of the family of God. Everything we need for life and godliness. It's really no different today for us. I'm not suggesting you can knock your neighbor's door and ask for silver and gold. You might not get all you're asking for. But of course, that's not the point, is it? The point is provision of what God's people need. And what we need, God will supply. Wasn't that Paul's confidence? My God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Far greater wealth than anything the Israelites were going to receive. But it's a token, it's a picture of a God who delivers and who provides for his people and who, as he does that, is keeping his promises. A final send-off. But then secondly, we see in this chapter the final judgment. The final judgment. Psalm 78, verse 50. Powerful language. He prepared a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death. He gave them over to the plague. And it is this episode that the psalmist is writing about in Psalm 78. However, God brought about the death of the firstborn, and we're not told how he did that. Was it a direct action of God and each of them it may well have been but it is an act of divine judgment that's what we need to see clearly God tells Moses I will go through Egypt every firstborn son in Egypt will die and so the Lord in his righteous wrath is striking a final blow that will also liberate his people from bondage. Egypt will be judged. Israel will be liberated. God will be glorified. And it is going to be a comprehensive judgment. Son of Pharaoh will be struck down. Son of the slave girl at the mill And that work was considered some of the lowest work anybody could do. Top of society, the bottom of society, even the livestock would be touched. And the result, the Lord says, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. Verse 6. Loud wailing. 
and significant. That's the same word that was used of the cry of the Israelites way back in chapter 3 and verse 9. The Israelites wailed, the Israelites cried out to the Lord in their oppression and their suffering. And God says, now the Egyptians will cry out and wail in their suffering. But there's one difference. When Israel wailed, when they cried out to the Lord, the Lord says in chapter 3, their cry has reached me. They cried out to a God who heard them. The Egyptians will cry out. They'll cry out to their gods. And there'll be silence. And nobody will hear them. Because their gods are no gods at all. And so the Israelites cry out. And the Egyptians cry out. The crucial difference. The Lord hears Israel. Nobody hears the Egyptians. There's nobody to answer. Once again, the gods of Egypt are shown to be powerless. They can't protect those who worship them. They can't deliver them. They can do nothing. In chapter 12, verse 12, the Lord says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Significant, surely, uh, that this firstborn son of Pharaoh when he would become Pharaoh, would become a god. And God simply takes him away. Some god. All the gods are empty and helpless. Only the Lord reigns. A vivid demonstration of what we hear so often in the Psalms. Psalm 96, 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols. And every object of worship that we might have, anything we put in God's place and give our first commitment to, that's an idol. You don't have to kneel in front of a piece of stone or a wooden carving to be worshipping an idol. Anything you put in God's place, anything that is your first priority, is your idol. For some it's a career, some it's financial security, some it's their health. All manner of idols that we can have. But when we cry out to them, there's silence. Only if we cry out to the living God is there one who hears and who answers. Why should be the firstborn that are struck in this final plague. Is that just a random choice on God's part? No, it isn't. There's a reason. And it's rooted in the covenant relationship between the Lord and his people. Listen to what the Lord says back in chapter 4 at verse 22. He says this to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. 
so I will kill your firstborn son. Do you see, the Lord's judgment reflects the nature of the sin against him. That's often the case in the Lord's wisdom. So often he does make the punishment fit the crime. And so it is in this case, and that's why the firstborn are chosen. And again, the Lord is showing himself to be a just judge. He's showing himself to be one who keeps his word. There's the same truth yet again. He keeps his word. And that's as true of his threats of judgment as it is of his promises of blessing. You can trust God's promises of blessing absolutely. But you can also trust his threats of judgment absolutely. And some might say, well, isn't this unfair? All these poor people, God striking them down like this. The truth is, God as the creator and as the just judge has the right to act as he wills against those who are in rebellion against him. And they are. These are pagan Egyptians in rebellion against God. And he is the judge. They are like every sinner in the language of Romans 1.20. They're without excuse. They're the wonders of God's creation. Their own constitution. They're the voice of conscience as every sinner does. And they closed their ears and their hearts to that. They are without excuse. None can say that's not fair. They have not acknowledged God. And here is a sample of his righteous judgment. He is the standard of justice. God the judge doesn't need to check the statutes and the law books. He is the standard of justice. And there's nothing unjust and there's nothing irrational in the tenth plague. Simply God, as the righteous judge, manifests his wrath. But of course this isn't entirely a story about the wrath of God. Notice the distinction that God is going to make in grace between the Egyptians and his people Israel. Profound distinction. Now, remember, the Israelites did not deserve God's favor any more than the Egyptians did. In fact, once Israel is out in the wilderness we see many of them were a rebellious, difficult, sinful crowd. They didn't deserve God's mercy or God's blessing any more than any Egyptian. This is the grace of God to undeserving sinners. And God shows his grace in a very visible way. It's very striking. Verse 7, among the Israelites, not a dog will bark. In fact, it's more vivid than that, literally. Uh, it says, not a dog will sharpen its tongue against anyone. 
And we need, of course, to think of the, uh, the, the feral dogs uh, that would run among uh, the people. We're not thinking of the pets. Egyptians worshipped dogs. The Israelites did not. And the dogs were often dangerous and a threat. But not one of them will be a threat to Israel. God will close their mouths. God will protect his people. Israel are perfectly safe, as chapter 12 will show. The Lord makes a distinction. And that's crucial. It's all of grace. And that is why sinful people are spared judgment. That is why sinful Israel is spared judgment. It's the grace of God. And that's why sinful people like you and like me are spared judgment. Because the grace of God is the great principle at the heart of the work of Messiah Jesus. It's grace. It's grace that distinguishes us from others. Nothing in us, the grace of God. Always, always, God's work, as Ephesians 2, 8 tells us, it's by grace. It's by grace there, the tenth plague in Egypt. It's by grace in your heart and your experience today. A gracious God makes the distinction, not of our deserving, but as we were thinking this morning, he loved us before the world was made. So there's the final send-off. There's the final judgment. And then briefly, the final hardening. The final hardening. As we come to the end of chapter 11, Pharaoh was given another opportunity to repent and to submit to the Lord. Even at this late stage, If Pharaoh had allowed Israel to go as God required, all would have been well for Pharaoh and the firstborn and for Egypt. Here is another opportunity. God gives him nine demonstrations of God's power already. And Pharaoh seen every one of them, even his officials, Ultimately, we're telling them, let these people go. They were at their limit and beyond it, and still Pharaoh will not submit. He will not bend. And he cannot for one moment complain that the Lord didn't give him opportunity. He had nine opportunities, and he didn't take one of them. Right to the end. The way of repentance is open. It's there if Pharaoh would turn, but he will not. And so the end has come. He really has reached the end of the line. And the righteous judge now confirms Pharaoh's choice. This is what he wanted This is what he'll get. When he gets it, he'll be horrified, but that's what he chose. 
And with sinners, that's the case. They will get, ultimately, what they chose. When they receive it and they realize what they've chosen, it'll be too late. So with Pharaoh, he's made his choice. And so we read in verse 10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. God's purpose in all of this is to provide a clear revelation of his glory. Verse 9, So that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt, that there will be no debate about how great God is. It will be clear ten times at the end of his dealings with the Egyptians. Even Pharaoh, in his hardness, and his resistance served the Lord's purpose. Sinners serve the Lord's purpose unwillingly, but they do. Satan himself ultimately serves the Lord's purpose. How frustrating for him, and how glorious for God. Even Pharaoh fulfills God's plan and purpose. He hates it. He resists it. But God is sovereign. And at every point, as we've seen in Exodus 11, God is keeping his word. When this final plague comes upon Egypt, it had been foretold before any plague took place back in chapter 4. And it reminds us again and again that God's people can rely totally on his word. Not one of God's promises or God's threats will prove to be empty. Not one. All that God says he will do, he will do. As the Lord Jesus Christ tells us, John 17, 17, as he addresses his Father, he says, Your word is truth. And it is. God keeps his word. And we can rely on his promises. They won't deceive us. They won't disappoint us. They won't fail us. Because he won't fail us. He keeps his word. And in the final confrontation here in Exodus 11, we see a God who promised deliverance for his people. And he'll deliver them. A God who promised judgment on the unrepentant. And he will judge. And we can trust his word today as much as Moses and Israel could trust it down in Egypt. A great God who will never fail us. He's given rich promises that will be fulfilled. Everything we need for life and godliness is there in Christ. 